to another episode of Captain Hunter's podcast, the podcast that is dedicated towards bridging the divide between the police and the communities that they serve. Thank you so much for tuning in. Thank you for the love, the support uh, that you all have been giving. I really, really appreciate it. Make sure that you are hitting that subscribe button, uh, that you are rating, subscribing and sharing. That is very, very important. That is the best way that you can help to support the podcast. Rate these episodes. Give it the thumbs up. Give it that five stars, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, share these episodes with your family, with your friends, with your co-workers. Uh, listen to them while you're at the at the park. Listen to them when you're going for a walk, uh, at your lunch break, like whatever. Um, and make sure that you are uh, subscribing to these episodes. You know, hit that thumbs up as well and subscribe to these episodes. That way you can get the notifications when a new episode is released. Uh, you can also support the podcast through PayPal, Cash App, and Venmo. All of those are CPTL Hunter. Cash App also has C-A-P-T-H-U-N-T-E-R. Head on over to the website, hunterpolicetraining.com, hunterpolicetraining.com. Uh, if, you have a, if you're a police officer, you want to take a promotional exam um, and get any type of preparation or, or help, uh, hit me up. Uh, even if you're not a police officer and you have some type of exam coming up or if you have a, any type of uh, situation where you're going up for a promotion, I'm certainly the man for you to come to, to see. Looking for a life coach? Once again, I'm the man for you to come and see. Looking for a diversity and inclusion uh, facilitator, instructor, coordinator, etc. Uh, I am the man for you to come and see. Um, I can be reached at cptlhunter at gmail.com. cptlhunter at gmail.com. Always looking for uh, show ideas, show guests. So if you're interested, let me know. If you know someone that you think that I should interview, let me know. Not always and only looking for uh, police officers or those in law enforcement. But as you know, we're bridging out to so many different things in so many different arenas. So I really appreciate uh, anyone uh, who wants to come on and just have a nice conversation about what's going on in the world, how we can improve law enforcement, how we can improve the community. Uh, and it's all it's all good. And it's all so very important. So once again, the email is cptlhunter. I'm on IG, Instagram, cptlhunter, Facebook, Captain Hunter's podcast. We do a show every monday 7 30 p.m eastern standard time different guests and every other wednesday we're doing a, a new segment called messy entanglements i've released a couple of episodes about that on the audio podcast um so uh, we're just talking about relationships and having a good time good a lot of laughs about that um those more and the more of those episodes will be released very shortly if you listen to the cupid and covid uh that was just a sample of that so more of those episodes a lot of laughs are going to be going on so today's episode, I have a great man, a uh, great uh, uh, historian, uh, instructor at the Concordia College in Minnesota. Uh, so uh, Mr. Adrian Mack is going to be joining us today on the, for an interview. We're going to talk about, as the title says, the importance of Black History Month. Really, really important. A lot of people are taking shots of Black History Month and all these different months. And I, and I, to be truth be told, I understand their their criticisms of of it. However. Uh, I think that uh, you know it's very important that we that we acknowledge the um, the efforts and the strivings of uh, African Americans, and uh, you know Black History Month is an attempt to do that. Now, I do believe, and I agree with uh, my host for today, or my my guest for today. He's not the host. <laughs> my guest for today, Mr. Adrian Mack, that um, you know it's, Black History Month is something that should be celebrated and learned about. Uh, or not Black History Month, but Black History Period is something that should be learned about and studied throughout the year. And therefore, a celebration of sorts should be uh, geared towards uh, February. So, but we'll, we'll get into it. So uh, he's an instructor at Concordia College in um, 
Minnesota. He and his wife, Ayolanda, were on the show uh, uh, that we did. It was a live Facebook live show that we did uh, that we'll be releasing that at another point in time. And um, and that episode is going to be about um, uh, that episode was about the, the, the black uh, family blueprint that they have. It's an organization that they started uh, in which they are trying to strengthen black families. And so, you know, um, so we, we had such a great conversation on that particular episode. Um, that I wanted to, um, Adrian to come back and just talk about the importance of Black History Month and, you know, the great family just trying to do some great things and trying to build up the black family so we can really make some strides and make some differences in the communities that we live. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, here is the interview with Mr. Adrian Mack as we talk about the importance of Black History Month. All right, so thank you to my man Adrian Mack. Thank you so much for coming once again on Captain Hunter's podcast. Thank you so much. It's an Good honor to see bro. you again. It's an honor. <laughs> thank you for having me. I, I watched the last one again, and I really appreciate the work you're doing. So thank you for having me. Well, I appreciate that, man. And uh, a lot of people have been saying that to me, and I appreciate them appreciating it. And <laughs> when I start to, to get some money, I really appreciate. It. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so uh, for those who did not listen to the last episode, I want you to go, make sure you go to the Facebook page, and I'll probably put the audio from that on there again. We talked about um, the importance of black excellence, the importance of uh, black people owning, becoming entrepreneurs, mm -hmm. and uh, teaching black history and all that kind of good stuff. And we had a great, great conversation. So I want to continue that conversation as we record this. It's now February, um, and it's Black History Month. So and it's become a more of a controversial topic within the last uh, you know few years. Mm -hmm. But before we jump into that main topic, man, just tell the audience just a little bit about yourself, your background, pedigree, and all that kind of good stuff. So, um, uh, kind of raised in um, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I'm originally from Miami, Florida. Um, all my people and family are down there. Um, after kind of my disciplinary background is the study of African-American history and the study of family science. So I've kind of combined the two to do the work that I do. Um, my wife and I um, have co-founded and run a company called Black Family Blueprint, where we focus on building social capital, um, Black uh, family wealth, health and wealth, and the ability to build interdynamic relationships within our family. So it's basically restoring the Black family to its place and to make it functional and thriving as an institution to be able to build a wholesome community and raise our next generation. So as a, a company, we will focus on coaching and building educational content for Black families and professionals who work directly with Black families. And so a lot of the work that I, my background is to, I'm a practicing historian um, by trade. And I say practicing because, you know, no, mo nobody really becomes a fully officialized certified historian unless you want to say you're um, official by Harvard or maybe Howard or, uh, you know, some type of prestigious institution. But most of us who do a lot of practice around it, we always go into this knowing that there's a lot to study in terms of looking at our history and our experience. There's always new dates. There's always new facts and new interpretations of events that um, happen historically that can help shape how we understand who we are today. So it's a practice and we're always looking for that sub alternative perspective or that new profound information to reinterpret what we already know. Very good. And what made you decide to uh, get into that? You just love history or? 
love history. You know, I had a mentor, you know, when I was a knucklehead and still a little bit of knucklehead, but when I was a knucklehead in high school, I had this one guy who engaged me um, and he's still significant in my life today. And in order to pull my head straight, he introduced me to some things that happened in the past. And primarily, first, it was the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense established by Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale in 1966 in Oakland, California. And I've never heard of that. And I'm like, whoa, what's this about? And then from there, it kind of intrigued me on these black men at such a young age who had these educational degrees, but use armed self-defense and education and the ability to uh, rebuild their community through understanding law. And I got fascinated. And from there, they put Naeem Agbar's book in my hand and Naeem Agbar exposed me to manhood and, and the psychological development of what it means to be a black man in America. And he threw in these little historical bits. And so from there, I got to hipped on to Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam. And then it was just, I became addicted. And so between my mentors and just kind of following different people who I've met over time, I just became so fascinated that by the time I got back into college, I said, I need to study the history of my people. And from there, um, the rest is history. Yeah, the rest is history as a historian there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, so that that's a that's a wonderful, wonderful story and wonderful journey. In mine, I'm, I'm not a historian. I do like to read, though. And when you mentioned Naeem Akbar's uh, book on the last show, I wrote it down. And then I went on uh, Amazon. I'm like, I got this book. <laughs> so I went yeah. to my library. I was just looking for where you said it. And I think I put it over here. But I actually I, re I, re I actually read it like four or five years ago. So I'm like, I nice. this book. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. 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 So that's a great, that's a great, great book. Um, yeah. So I definitely suggest that people get breaking the chains of uh, psychological breaking yeah. those chains of psychological slavery, right? I think yes. that's the name. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. one of the great, one of the top, you know, ten books I think that every black person should should read. You know, absolutely. Um, talked about the history of the Panthers. Mm -hmm. I actually have uh, a woman who's going to come on um, uh, next week, and we're going to talk about the Panthers. I've been meaning to talk about this mm -hmm. for over a year now, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yes. uh, and so she's going to talk about the the art the historical kind of art kind of thing so she wrote a book about that so i'm looking forward to that she's in a professor emeritus at forgive me i don't even know some some university so i found her some somehow some way so you and i can get into that a, a little bit but but i also was very intrigued when you hear about the panthers right if mm -hmm. anybody doesn't look into them right you you hear about the Panthers, you think it's just a bunch of armed thugs just running around just just right. defiling the police and, and you know walking around with shotguns and walking up to sacramento capital and all that no, these brothers were in were in college, yes. and they did what they did after yes. the assassination of of, of Malcolm. Yes. Right? They said, "Listen, man, this is crazy. You know, this yes. Malcolm's dead. We got to do something." So, uh, and so they took up, so they took the arms. But these brothers were engineers, right? They weren't yes. just like studying, yes. you know, uh, accounting. They were like yes. engineers. They were they were super smart brothers and right. sisters. Oh you yes. Know? Yes, uh, I'm actually, I actually, I'm actually trying to get Angela Davis on on the show, but Ooh. I don't know, if she, I don't know if she'll come on. <laughs> I'm probably too small tie for her. But <laughs> but I don't I'm know, man. She tends to show up in places where you think you wouldn't think she would. So yeah, she's a committed sister. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I'd really like to have her on. I just actually, I I just got her book um about um, the reforming of prisons or are prisons are prisons still. Whatever, whatever the title is, yeah. whatever the title is, something about prison reform and mm -hmm. you know, the prisons are obsolete or something like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. uh, so I haven't, so I haven't started reading it yet, but I'm dying to read that. Um, obviously, that's that's right up my alley and all that kind of nice. stuff. So, nice. so man, yeah, man. So, 
So, so the Panthers, man. People think, oh, matter of fact, isn't that movie coming out today? Uh, yeah, uh, Judas and the Messiah, Judas uh, Messiah, something like Judas that. and the Black Messiah. Yeah, yeah, Black yeah, Messiah. yeah. And that was yeah. uh, stationed around the story of Fred Hampton out of Chicago, Southside Chicago. And I think there's a lot that's going to be re, re kind of revisited around what happened with the assassination of Fred Hampton um, and one of his colleagues. And and they're looking at some of the details and the data around that. But the movie, again, is going to bring up the Panthers to the surface and to really look strategically at who they were and what they did. And so they can is kind of shattering this whole idea of this myth of this, this militant vanguard that just wanted to run around and protect the community, but how they were strategically trying to create alliances to move the progression of Black folks in thinking about cooperatives looking at their economic situation, how they partner with other communities, how they look at building institutions for themselves around healthcare, supporting the elders, how they had to, you know, wanted to support uh, methods of supporting children with their nutrition and their educational processes within their school. And so we look at different chapters from California to Missouri to, to Illinois um, and, and many different, we see that the strategies of what the Panthers had had very little to do with the image of the gun and and uh, the the Second Amendment right, but more so how to rebuild the effectiveness of the community taking responsibility for what it need. And they developed their ten point platform in emulation and um and inspiration from the Nation of Islam. But they was very specific on making sure that there was current issues that address brothers like like you talked about with Angela Davis, brothers in the prison system. They 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 wanted to look at how there was a lot of brothers who was railroaded and that there was a lot of political refugees in prison and we needed not only reform but release those brothers. They also was looking at the healthcare practices within our community and to make sure that healthcare was being addressed in a more effective way to make sure that you know black folks are receiving the type of healthcare that is needed. One of the key things that they hung their 10 point platform on is dealing with the militarization of law enforcement at that time. Now, it's interesting because as much as the rhetoric talk about the Black Panther parties being kind of uh, against the police or law enforcement, they were against the militarization of white supremacy that showed up in law enforcement in Oakland and in parts of California. And when we look at the history, we start to understand that there was a major recruitment in the 1950s, late 40s and 1950s, of many uh, newly law enforcement uh, forces deputizing um, um, white Southern immigrants from Texas, from Alabama, from Mississippi, coming to Nevada and coming to California to be a part of the law enforcement. So there was a pool of white men from the South to get a job in law enforcement in California. And there was uh, uh, several sheriffs and, and uh, I think the attorney generals are, are part of this recruitment effort in the 50s that brought in a lot of white families from the South into the West that helped to fill the ranks of how whiteness and white supremacy showed up in California counties and stuff like that. And so we see, uh, and it, it kind of culminated in what we saw in the 1965 Watts riots, what happened in Los Angeles during the, um, in the mid sixties that exploded to them seeing law enforcement uh, abusing, um, not abusing, but physically attacking and occupying black communities in um, California. And so it spurred with the spark of, of uh, Malcolm and assassination of Malcolm 
and what they saw with the organizing efforts in Mississippi has spurred the idea of creating uh, the protection of our rights, constitutional rights, and how we can mobilize to build an infrastructure to support our communities. And it took the idea and iconography of the um, Mississippi campaign in 1964 of the Black Panther icon, and they created the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in October of 1966. So there's a trajectory of how the Panthers built off of existing movements, existing ideas, and how it was a culmination of what was happening at that time that had many different factors of employment, the migration of white Southerns and law enforcement and the militarization of law, uh, law enforcement and how that went into building um, and sparking what we now call the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Yeah, you're saying a mouthful there, brother. Are you still... Are you are you still uh, teaching? You still uh, teaching at uh, you were teaching at a university, right, or a college? I, or? I don't teach. I, I teach. I teach Concordia. I teach family science in Concordia okay. right now, Concordia University. But I don't teach history um, at the college campus. I'm trying to get in somewhere where I could teach history courses. But right now, it's, it's, you know, up here in Minnesota, teaching history has changed. You have to have a very specific background in your discipline and your yeah. well, I, to get in. Everything is so bifurcated right down the line, man. So, I mean, you you got to be laser targeted to. <laughs> you can't just teach history. History, you got to right. teach history from nineteen eleven to nineteen twelve. Mm -hmm. Like, mm -hmm. like what? <laughs> you know, That's right. yeah, they they they, they 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 narrow you down to a certain few decades and a certain. Yeah. Focus, and it's like, oh man, I, I study all history. So yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. Um. So, so the importance of, of, of black history, um, a lot of times people will try to pigeonhole us into, by us, I mean, Western society, you know, mm -hmm. even though we're black people still in Western society. Right. Mm -hmm. So they try to, pin, and, and they, and they always quote the, the great thinkers, the Nietzsche's, the Dostoevsky's, the, the, mm -hmm. I don't even know what other, you know, English philosophers that are out there and stuff. Mm -hmm. What does that do to a black person's psyche when you're constantly being told that this is art, mm. this is this is uh, uh, good philosophy, this is you know that that type of thing, and we don't see ourselves in that? What what does that do to our psychology? Um, there's a lot that it does. Um, I think, and, and I'm only going to kind of regurgitate what earlier philosophers and thinkers around this, black scholars who've been thinking around this, have been saying for a while that when we have to define our history, our understanding of history, and when we have to define our understanding of seeing the world psychologically through the lens of a European writer, of a European um, uh, projector, then we look at ourselves as some type of abstract to our place in humanity. And it creates an alienation to who we understand ourselves is. So we're always looking at ourselves adjacent to what we think is normal. We never consider ourselves as being normal. So when we're looking at Freud and we're looking at Jung and when we're looking at all of these earlier philosophers and how they established the world from the lens of their philosophical ideas, Black folks is always trying to fit themselves within that world. And so it creates kind of like this alienation or disalienation, uh, kind of in a sense of disalienated experience to how we define ourselves in connection to humanity. And so this is where earlier educators and earlier scholars who was radical at the time 
attempted to challenge in the late 19th century, in the late 20th, uh, 19th century and early 20th century, they was challenging these philosophers and these historians and these early behaviors that became later psychologists. And they were saying, there's a way that we can look at the Negro in history and recalibrate the center of how the Negro look at themselves in, in, in terms of their contribution to humanity. And so that that was at the time, we're talking about a very radical in the early 1910s and the 1920s, that's a very radical push, even though the data was there. There was a lot of archival manuscripts and books written by European scholars who tracked and faxed so much of the African and, and, and African-American life and they're what they've done and different people who've contributed certain things, it was never compiled in such a way where we revisioned our history from that position. And so this is where you're starting to see many scholars like Woodard and uh, Woodson and, and Du Bois and, and um, Moreau, Trotter, um, um, Gibson, all of these, and I'm saying their last names because there's so many, um, Cooper, uh, Anna Julia Cooper, all of these uh, black scholars in the late 1900s, early 20th century, who um, started to redesign the literature of black thinking through studying the history of where we've contributed to civilization. They started to look at British scholarship, uh, French scholarship of antiquity and rethinking, looking at what did Africa have to contribute? If, we, if they're saying in the mid 1900s that Africa is the, one of the birthplace of early civilization, where does that place the Negro in, if the Negro has a lineage or an ancestry from Africa? And they started to go back and try and try to retrace the steps and, and, and making sure that we can formally connect the dots between how these, these Negroes or Africans in America have this lineage that connect them to these great civilizations of West Africa and how these great civilizations of West Africa are basically just the godsons or the grandsons of these earlier civilizations of antiquity like Kemet and Kush and early um, Egypt. And so it challenged the premises of these European philosophers. It challenged the uh, premises of these earlier historians um, that put us in a position of revisionists, but we had to do it with facts. Anytime black scholarship had to come up, present something new against European paradigms, we have to come with facts. We can't we can't make up anything. We can't uh, 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 kind of gloss over anything historical. We have to come with hardcore evidence and facts. And that's what we saw um, in that era, which birthed the study of the Negro, um, the, uh, the life of the Negro, and the, 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 life, the Negro and the history, the life of the Negro and the history of the life, whatever that title is. That's where Negro history was birthed out of. This is what we see is in that time and in that experience, this new celebration, this new emphasis on the Negro life in history is coming out of this challenge of Black folks and Black scholars challenging this European paradigm of philosophers, behaviors, and historians who did everything they could to wipe us out of history for the benefit of capital development in America. Again, you're saying the mouthful there, brother. Uh, <laughs> one of my one of my favorite books, probably the number one book I would I, I definitely recommend that all all uh, black people read is the Miseducation of the Negro. Oh by, yeah, uh, Carter G. Woodson. Yeah, people mm -hmm. 
people really, really need to, to learn that book. Um, mm -hmm. um, so Black History Month, right? So mm -hmm. we fast forward, you give us the, the history of the history, where we, where we get our history. So many times people need to, to read this stuff. So we get Black History Month. Uh, just, just, I mean, people probably know this already, but just run down the history. And what are mm -hmm. your thoughts about, is it still necessary? And you got that article I sent you about, yes. about that brother yeah. from Michigan, right? Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm, I'm going to speak on that because that's going to be, <laughs> I'm going to complicate what he's trying to do a little bit, but also put him into a certain place where. Right. He needs to be put in his place. Yeah. 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 We got to put him in place. <laughs> <laughs> What we call Black History Month and um, it started off as Negro History Week in 1926. And it started from an organization called the Association for the Study of, uh, of Negro Life and History. And um, it's birthed out of the brainchild of Carter G. Woodson, Carter, uh, Carter, Carter uh, what was his, Good, Good, Goodwin Woodson. I think that was his, Carter Goodwin Woodson, Carter G. Woodson. And, um, and he, started the, he started Negro History Week in 1926, but the organization that he started started in 1915. And again, it was an effort to, uh, it was a radical effort to challenge the paradigm of what was commonly accepted as uh, science that placed uh, African Americans or the Negroes of that time in adjacent to apes. And so that was a common belief that somehow we were an evolved ape and that. European in America was this supreme human that has evolved to this cognitive thinking, rational being, but human black folks was this emotive um, ape-like that was just above ape and we were simple-minded, okay? These are some of the beliefs that spurred out of, uh, out of early philosophers and historians. And so of course, a lot of black scholars of that time didn't believe that and Carter G. Watson was one who was a uh, very uh, uh, poised and militant to challenge that uh, that trope, and so the establishment of Negro History Week in 1926 was for the main purpose of celebrating and emphasizing what we have learned throughout the entire year. He focused on the second week of February because it was the birth of Abraham Lincoln and what we believe is also the same week that Frederick Douglass was born. And so Negro History Week was in a sense supposed to be the emphasis of what, it was supposed to be a celebration of what we've already accomplished and studied throughout the other 11 months. It wasn't designated as this is the only time we set aside for um, the study of the Negro, it was designated as a culminating piece to celebrate. So we were supposed to do the work. Now, this is from his journal. This is from uh, the, uh, the, the Negro Bulletin issue, January issue of 1943. So anybody who's watching, when you're watching when it's recording, I'm not saying anything that hasn't already been established. If you want to look at the exact quote from Carter G. Woodson's mouth, the January edition of the Negro Bulletin of, of, of 1943, you'll see it in there it was supposed to emphasize what we've already studied over the 11 months. And so when he established the study of the, study of the Negro history, uh, which is another journal, another bulletin in 1934, it was specifically focused on educators and teachers so they can help establish a curriculum for students, college students and elementary students throughout the entire year. 
So mm. you're supposed to do the work. So from March 1st up until January 30th, you were supposed to do the work of studying Timbuktu, studying ancient Ghana, the Sungai people. You were supposed to study um, Haiti and and Toussaint of Alavatura. I never get his name right. You were yeah, I, to I'm not even gonna try. Yeah, yeah. Toussaint. You were supposed to study Nat Turner, Frederick Douglass, Anna Julia Cooper. You were supposed to know who Benjamin Mays was and then Benjamin Banneker. That was the emphasis of looking at the history of our people and contributions to not only American democracy, but our contributions to civilization as a whole. And once you study all of that for the 11 months, when it comes to Negro History Weeks, you're supposed to put up posters. You're supposed to be presenting reports. You're supposed to be putting your icons up to celebrate what you've done in that second week. Well, by the time the late 1960s come around and you have black students on campuses throwing their fist up and they're uh, uh, staging sit-ins and they're um, occupying halls on college campuses, the goal and the effort was to establish not only African-American studies, but also push the emphasis of that. We're going to push this thing from a study, a celebration of a week to a whole month. And so Kent State, UC Berkeley, and you had these different colleges that said, black students said, we ain't going to just study this for history. We're going to bring the whole damn month into our occupation. And we're going to celebrate the study of our people from what we've learned throughout the entire year. We expanded it from a week to a month. Okay. So by the time President Gerald Ford comes around in 1976, the first president to acknowledge Black History Month, every single president since 1976 have, that has presided has acknowledged Black History Month. But it's under that illusion that the broader uh, educational structure and broader America believes that this was something that was given to Black folks and not something that we just created and occupied for ourselves. Okay, it was given to black folks, and that's the misconception and misnomer. So, every single president from Ford, you know, and uh, um, uh, to you know, Carter, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, everybody has said something in February to the effect of acknowledging black folks in history, and so educational structures, even through the process of integrating it into uh, integrating ourselves into the educational system, they we've pulled in certain small pieces of trying to adopt this level of history, but they designated to February. And this was against the established philosophy of the organization that established Negro History Week and Black History Month that you was to study the whole year and celebrate in February, not only emphasize and celebrate uh, uh, in, in February. And so that's some of the misnomer. And I think part of that process is that black folks have given um, prerogative to educational systems, um, the responsibility of teaching our children about their history. And that's where we messed up at. The integrative process has shifted the responsibility of our work to study our history and to transmit that to our children. And we've placed it in the hands of the educational system, which Malcolm already says, you can't put your, uh, the study of your people in the hands of your oppressor. They're not going to do right with that. They're going to kill you with it. And that we've made that mistake for the last few decades. And that's one of the things that we have to pull back and put back in, in, into the ranks of our own community and our own institutions, that our study of our history has to belong within community and within black institutions. And we 
create that um, that celebra uh, celebratory process every February um, based on what we did throughout the entire year. And so there's always been challenges on that. You know, a lot of brothers get paid during, a lot of sisters get paid during Black History Month um, because that's the month where many institutions contract Black folks in to come speak and do a small segment and historical analysis on Black folks in history. But the reality is that they should be doing that from March 1st going forward. That we need to talk about everything. Like there's nothing in America that you can't talk about that is not related or directly connected to the African experience. Whether you're talking about the e-commerce development, um, the taxation laws, the earliest establishment of the constitution, any war that has been fought, we have a presence and a deep presence in. Whether you're talking about the development of educational structures, political the democracy development, Black folks is right there at the center in some way. So the study of American history is essentially the study of African-Americans in this country. But here's where it gets complicated. Carter G. Woodson in his publication in 1927, a year after he established Negro history said, we don't need no undue process, uh, undue uh, um, um, uh, uh, eulogy of the Negro history that we don't need anything that's dedicated to study Negro history. We need to study the life of the Negro in history. So this is where it gets a little complicated that the founding, what we, we've established as the founding father of, uh, of, of Black History Month is saying that we don't need something that's designated with a certain segregated time and space to just study that. We need to study entire history, but put the African or the Negro in that history. And so it, it, it takes us kind of to the conversation of what Representative August Austin Chin Ching is saying, because <laughs> you know it's complicated. Like his political motives of why he's doing that, it has nothing to do with what Carter G. Woodson is talking about. And there's been others who's pushed that same agenda. I mean, we had a few years ago, Stacey Dash, and I don't know why people even take that girl even serious, said the exact same thing. We shouldn't have Black History Month. That she felt like it's racist and that um, nobody, nobody else got a month dedicated for the study of their history. So why should black folks have that history? That comes from a deep sense of uh, cognitive dissonance. That comes from a deep um, alienation of who you are. That comes from a deep kind of warped idea and distortion of what it means to be black or African in this country. And that's what makes this conversation so complicated, this discourse complicated because for one, nobody gave us that history. Two, if we leave the, the interpretation of history in the hands of European American scholarship, we're always gonna be marginalized. We're always gonna be a footnote. We're always gonna have this very distorted view and perception of what our role is in the development of humanity. So it makes sense for us to establish a process of looking at the study of history, our humanity from our own perspective, but as educational institutions attempt to adopt and commercialize and commodify it within educational systems, it looks like something that has been ha handed to us. And so Austin Ching, when he says stuff like that, he's coming from this position that somehow there's been this institutionalized force that wants to honor Black folks over everybody else. And he's not looking at the depreciation and deprecation that African descendants in this country who are descendants of those who were enslaved have experienced. 
and have been devalued and have been marginalized and disenfranchised from the conversation of humanity. He's off. He's very off. And I and there's a part of it where it gets into the complicated reality of some of my West Af my African brothers who migrate here in the last few decades. There's a lot of disconnection and disassociation that disassociate disassociation that they have with the history of Africans or Black folks in this country, and they tend to show up and and spew some of the ideas of whiteness a lot more concrete and a lot more uh, vicious than some white folks would even say it in today's terms in today's discourse. And so it, it gets a little complicated, you know. And and I know he's a politician, but that's a grab for vote. That's a grab for votes. That's a grab for uh, um, um, accommodating a certain white block to make sure that he uh, presents himself as a representative for um, the, the larger Michigan body. Right, right, right. I want to uh, just pull it up here for the uh, audience here. This is the article that we're, we're discussing here and for the audio uh, uh, um people out there in audio land there. Uh, this is from the Griot says a black GOP candidate for governor wants to end black history month. It's offensive, mm. unfair, maybe illegal. Austin Chang contends African, um, um, excuse me, Americans from all backgrounds deserve a res, res, revered history. And this was published February 9th uh, by Biba Adams in the Griot. Um, so he's running for governor brother, obviously with the last name Chang, he's obviously some immigrant, uh, and mm. I don't mean that, I don't mean that to be disrespectful. He's right. an, an immigrant from, uh, you know, some African nation probably got here and got elected or, or is running for election. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, shout out to, to all the, those African brothers who are coming up here in, uh, getting degrees and, in, in making the most of the American dream. But as you mentioned, uh, these people are, <laughs> Uh, you know, they, they, they seem to sometimes not understand the full extent of mm -hmm. the African experience, uh, African-American experience, you know, e even though I've heard some, uh, some uh, people say in their own country that um, uh, they had it just as rough, but they're still kind of making it. So, but that's, that's his take on it. So your take on it, obviously you gave us a great, a great history on it. Your take is that it's still relevant for today in 2020. Very, so. Very much so. I think it's a relevant the value of the study of our history not only democratizes America, but it allows, I think, outside of the study of the indigenous pe uh, people um, who occupied this land before uh, early European um, invaders, the study of, because <laughs> that's what they were, invaders, it was corporate invaders. The corporate invaders. Yeah, because <laughs> I mean, it was funded by wealthy groups from um, England and and and, um, and Spain. Well, to I thought they were I thought they were coming here to uh, to escape religious persecution. Escape persecution. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is why uh, I want to offer to your your listening audience, your uh, uh, viewers, study the uh, the Renoco experiment. And just Google that, Renoco experiment. And that failed experiment of the 1860s and uh, I'm sorry, the 1560s and 1570s will give you a clear example of what happened uh, 40 years later at uh, Jamestown and how um, they encountered uh, those, um, what was the indigenous group of Jamestown? The, it wasn't the Renoco, it was the, um, uh, 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 
can't remember the exact group, but um, study that experiment because then you'll understand the economic ramifications of how corporations was established in order to create the earlier colonies. It's what, it was a corporate move. It was a corporate investment in land ownership, occupation, building cash crop to support the mother country. Okay, and so studying African presence in that, studying and understanding the African's role and how we got caught up into that, into that intertwined corporate move across the Atlantic gives us a more visceral understanding of how democracy, capital, and the economy of America was built to become a global power. You can't understand America without understanding the trajectory of the African experience. So is it necessary? Yes. Is it necessary in the hands and the ownership of our current educational system? I don't think so. I think black folks have to reclaim the study of our peoplehood and we have to institutionalize it away from the education system so that way the education system have to come to us, borrow from us and recognize and partner with us to acknowledge that. Because that's when you start to see a full um, blueprint or a map of how other communities who wants to be acknowledged in terms of their contribution to America can set up a true partnership to recognize their history and humanity as it relates to the democratization of America. Um, but it's not something that we need to put in the hands of the national educational school structure and system and say, teach us our history. That's the fallacy. That's where we've written wrong since the late 60s and the early 70s. That's where we've kind of, we've lost the responsibility of that and we need to regain and capture that. It's vitally important today. The responsibility of studying our, studying our humanity should never be in the hands of any institution that doesn't come from our community, should never be in the hands. Do we need black history, uh, the study of black history and a black history month celebration? Absolutely but it should be in the occupation and the autonomy and the development of African descendants who are in this country. I could not say it anymore. I have, when I grew up in church, I tell the story all the time. So if my audience, please forgive me. I'm going to tell it again. Yes, uh, but, I, but I was all, I am very, I, I grew to be very critical in my later years, you know, in my twenties, 25, 30 or so uh, concerning what we were learning mm. uh, during every single Sunday particularly Sunday school, as you mentioned, the institutions, right? The, the, the church is and has been traditionally the biggest institution. We have, we've had some community centers, but nothing else was was, was there. So we had the institution. Uh -huh. um, and so that was our institution was the church. Yep. So but every Sunday, we, we my mother drug us to church. <laughs> uh, we sat there, got there for 10 o'clock Sunday school. And till 1130, we learned Jewish myths, Jewish mm -hmm. legends. Right, mm -hmm. Moses and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and mm -hmm. and, and I'm not trying to dis disrespect anyone's history and culture, but that's not ours. That's right. And so we need to. Uh, I totally agree with you that we that is the perfect time and perfect opportunity for us to go through the hi different histories that you mentioned. I can remember one time, and I was really becoming more conscious. Um, I was um, at a church, and on the wall, they had the twelve. Uh, um, the 12 tribes of Judah. Mm. 
12 tribes of Judah and people would sign up to do, and if you were, what, I don't even remember the tribes, Jacob's tribe or whatever, whatever they were, I don't remember what they are. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you were one of those particular tribes, then it was your week to, I don't know, help shovel the snow or, right. So it was, it was just something to do. So everybody had a job to do, but it, it tried to make you feel special. Like you're in this group and this is where you are. And I'm like, and at the same time, I'm going to a, a community college, Naugatuck yeah. Valley Community College. And the, the Black Student Union had up on their wall different tribes of, of, of Africa, the Ashanti, the, you know, and all. So I'm thinking, how come <laughs> I'm in this church and they're telling us, to, you know, they want us to join these different tribes so we can do different things. Mm -hmm. Just take, you could have the same program, just name it after these African tribes. Tell mm -hmm. them what they were. And so this, this, and after a while, I began to present these ideas. This wasn't something I just kind of sat on. I began to present these ideas to the leadership. And it just got nowhere. It just went nowhere. And I appreciate what you said about the history. And I think that's very, what, the history that you gave us is extremely important. Because many people think that uh, it was simply um, a month that was given to us just to shut the black folk up, essentially. Mm -hmm. uh, let's just give them a month. You know, They, they want to keep rioting in the streets. Let's just give them a month. Mm -hmm. But if we do from March 1st, to January 31st, if we put in the work, then we really have something to celebrate. We'll have more understanding of our history, of ourselves, mm -hmm. of our psychology, and where we've gone from the past, where we are today, and how we can get to where we want to get to tomorrow. Mm. So I think I think that that's extremely, extremely, extremely important. So I, I am advocating that if there's any ministers, pastors out there, if you listen to this po podcast, please, Think about what you're with every single Sunday. What is going on in, in those sun, in those churches? Yeah. Where is the African experience? Where is we, you, you said it perfectly? We, we we are part of history. Where are we in that history? Mm. Put us in that history. Mm. You know. And so I think mm. that that I think that that would would go a long way. Your your, yeah. your thoughts? Yeah, it would. It would. And man, the the, the biblical history is so. It's, it's, it's so complicated because so much of the biblical history is part revisionist history. Um, and I know this will push up against a lot of uh, theological uh, historians who... Um, <laughs> spoiler alert here. We're going, spoiler to, alert. <laughs> we're going to offend some people, so you might want to cover your ears now. So right, but, right. But <laughs> there, there's a lot of historical acceptance and agreed upon narrative that has been existed in the biblical history. It doesn't mean that there's no history relevancy in the Bible. There is some. But we have to think about the occupation and the development and evolving of different uh, additions and different revisions of the biblical text. Mm -hmm. And so trying to find our history or our experience, and I'm, I'm not even going to say history because most biblical establishment is African history. OK, there's very little. I don't even think there's anything in what we call the, the, the books in the Old and New Testament that was situated anywhere in England or anywhere in Italy or anywhere, it, none of that exists. The closest is Greece. And you see a certain book that's associated to an island and, and um, different, I think it was Paul who wrote to different people on that island. But most of it is in, in what John Henry Clark calls Northeast Africa. They call it Middle East today, but it was Northeast Africa because when you understand how different empires ruled and the influence of their room and the way it trajectory and went in the direction all in all different directions, you find out that the center of 
the uh, civiliz civilizing ruling and empire existed in North Africa and they ruled what we now call the Middle East and everything. So there was heavy influence and military power and um, 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 cultural influence on that parts of history. So Chancellor Williams says this in the um, Destruction of Black Civilization. John Henry Clark proposes this. Joseph Behakinen proposes this. These are scholarship that has had looked at that they went to France and, and England and studied in different sectors and revised what we understand now as that North African contribution to earlier um, religious development. And so that biblical text um, in so many ways has been challenged and so many ways have been unsubstantiated and, and, so, and, so, and so, so many different formalities that when we see it show up in our black institutions of the church, we're looking at this revised understanding from this Eurocentric perspective, and we're trying to, again, make sense of ourselves in that historical imagination, in that historical revision. And so um, we want to make sense of kind of like these earlier Jewish and Talmudic understandings of um, the Old Testament and see our African connections. But the reality is that a lot of these early um, tribes in these early renditions of Old uh, Testament scholarships and Old Testament writings were just African folks. They weren't European. And so if anything, we have to adjacent ourselves to recognizing that these early folks, Mo Moses or Moshiach was us. Um, um, Solomon was us. Um, that David was us. That uh, Dawood, you know, in, in early pronunciations, Dawood was us. These were people who were of African ancestry, what we now call African ancestry. So, but we have to own that from that position and not necessarily be trying to look at the biblical understanding from the lens of a Eurocentric interpretation and trying to place ourselves somewhere within that. And it's complicated. It's very complicated. Um, there's still places right now in some of our institutions across the nation that have white Jesuses on their wall. Um, they have, um, um, uh, depictions of early white prophets on their wall um, because we're still got this lens of a European interpretation of, of these earlier African people that lived in this region. So I know that's kind of, uh, we're looking at history, but it's kind of looking at some of that biblical history and the complication of that biblical history. But um, um, it, it's important for us to really try to revision early Christian movements or early um, biblical understandings from the African origins that they originated from. Yes. And so uh, one of the brothers who really helped me to get really awake is Dr. Amos Wilson. He's since passed. Oh, Ever oh yeah. yeah. Okay. You know, Dr. Amos Wilson, mm -hmm. uh, great, great psychologist and uh, him and Bobby Wright, great, great mm -hmm. black psychologist. Mm -hmm. um, so their, their work is on YouTube, although not, not much for by Bobby Wright, but you can watch. You can get a PhD by watching. Uh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> by, by watching by watching Dr. Amos Wilson. I highly, highly recommend brothers pick him up. So, the, the psychology of this. Well, let, let me let me address this first. Is is first the how do we get the leadership to buy into this? As I mentioned, when I try to bring when I try to bring it up, I was shot down. You talk about these different churches who still have these certain images on their wall. Mm -hmm. Um. And so how do we get them to break free from this mindset of, of this type of thinking and say, it's okay to seek out, search, understand, love, embrace, teach the history that we have. Mm. 
How do, how do you get them? Instead mm -hmm. of having these different images on a wall, are the 12 tribes of Judah, whether, we, I mean, we can certainly argue about that, but mm -hmm. let, well, let's get into the Western Africa, to, you know, Western right. Africa That's as right. well, you know, the, the different, you know, in the deep on gay people and, and, and all that. I stuff. think that's I think that's always going to be our struggle because we're still in this path of trying to revise and understand our history. Um, I don't know if you can with some, and the process is already happening. When I look at what Reverend Wright is doing in Chicago and how mm. he interprets the biblical understanding from an African presence, that's like phenomenal. And he's a part of a tradition that has started well into the early 60s. Um, and I want to say even before that, I want to say even um, um, Henry, a uh, Reverend Henry McNeil Turner was a revolutionary in the early uh, 20th century and late uh, 19th century in really redefining his uh, pastoral understanding from an African presence and African um, position. Um, and so I think I think that tradition is exists amongst us, but I think it's one of those where we're going to constantly have to um, plant the seed, but more so do the work with the current and younger generation because they are the ones who's going to step into the leadership positions within the, our church institutions, within our, of course, our mosque institutions is already progressive in that, but they're also going to do the work within the educational institutions to really recenter the understanding of our place in humanity and in, hu in history and making sure that it has a rightful place in that. And so I, I young, we have to really pour into what Carter G. Woodson did throughout his entire life. You know, he never got married. He never had kids. But when we look at the later, uh, the Negro uh, Bulletin of the 1940s, late 1940s, and then before he passed away in 1950, we see these tributes from these young kids who had this relationship with Carter G. Woodson of him coming over um, in DC to their school and eating ice cream with them and spending time with them and having conversations with them. Nobody knew that until you start reading the publication because he was very disciplined and militant with just reading, studying and putting out publications and making sure that there's a process of educational development and curriculum for our community across the nation. But you find out that he poured into young people who was planting the seeds. He mentored young college students under him who eventually became publicated after him and took some of his work and re-edited and revised it and published some stuff out. That's what he did. You see, made sure he planted the seed for the next generation. So that's an important um, tradition and an important value that we have to look at in terms of building that leadership. But in order to influence the current leadership, you know, that's always going to be part of that um, conflicting discourse that we're going to have because it takes scholarship and it takes us being in that scholarship. And we have a lot of academics who's on that road. I mean, you go, I mean, Henry Lewis Gates, I, I, I do. I've grown to really appreciate him lately because his idea of just trying to help us to get connected in that historical piece and lineage in our family history is important. And he's kind of picking up this tradition of what Alex Haight, or, or, or Alex Haley started in, um, in the uh, late 1960s, early 1970s, and the mid 1970s. And so he's keeping this thing moving. And there's numerous scholarships from Thomas Agrew, excuse me, um, who's doing phenomenal work today. Um, what's our sister name? Isabel Wilkerson, who did a phenomenal piece on the black migration of 
folks coming from the south to the uh, going to the west going to canada and going up north she just recently uh, published a book last year called cast that looks at our experience from an economic position and um how we've been sub uh, subjugated to an abject poverty and abject place in this country and so we got historians who are on the front line as presenting facts and challenging um the position of where we stand in this country so that way we can we not only revise and revision but we can actually accept our place in humanity in the development of america but also accept our place in the development of broader civilizations across the nation uh, across the globe and so it's, it's going to be always putting up there like you're doing using venues like this to put up the literature and put up the facts and put up the new ideas and challenging current leaderships to accept um, that there's a different narrative out there that's more accurate, that is not slanted or rooted in white supremacist ideas of humanity. Um, and we're always gonna uh, fall victim to that. There's always gonna be someone who cannot accept the experience and history of black folks and what we've contributed to the globe and to this nation. And what do you think we should do with persons like that, whether they be black or white? Um, we continue to challenge it. We continue to challenge it. Um, I, I I like the idea of debates. Debates are very important, and I think debates have to exist away from academia as well, too. Like we all we got we see this rich tradition of debates happening in academic circles and on college campuses, but we need debates in communities around this. You know, we need to bring. Uh, white scholarship or uh, indigenous scholarships, or now, now there's kind of this, this controversy over, uh, 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 I ain't gonna say Latino, but kind of uh, South American Latino scholarship against African scholarships. We need to bring them into a space, allow them to shake hands, respect each other in their discipline, and then present the facts. Um, John Henry Clark was notorious with just slaying white scholarship. In the yeah. You guys go watch those on YouTube too. It's like, oh, yes, yes, yes. oh my goodness, you could get a PhD just, you know, just go after and just knock down some of these white historian giants of that time. And we need that level of public community discourse so that way we're pushing up against their narrative and they're also going through a full. Um, revised dissertation on how they accumulated their facts and whether or not it holds up to full public uh, facts and opinions. Saying some deep stuff, brother. Do you, does your organization and uh, your business have a curriculum that people could adopt or they could write you or where could we get a curriculum, mm. develop one? We we don't. Black Family Blueprint really focuses on the family development and family development model. So our piece looks at how parents can incorporate an environment to transmit this history and this values and this practice in the ritualistic engagement of their children. And so we have kind of like a curriculum and workshops that centers around how we can parent with information of our history, parent with information of building ethnic identity those pieces but i wish we had i mean we don't focus on kind of like developing historical curriculum for parents at all okay well maybe i'll put one together or something <laughs> i'll be right there with you brother yeah a resource or at least a resource list i think we should put something like yeah that. a resource list some, something because i think i i can't I mean, listen you know man i mean my my background is is forensic psychology so that's that's understanding why p 
people go go awry in the stride. It's almost like criminology and all that kind of stuff. But it's forensic psychology. How? What's the psychology? Not only the criminal, but how did they develop that psychology, and how can we change it? You know, whether the, whether the criminal justice system is making things worse. You know, does probation parole actually work? But 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 the point is, is that we have to understand how we got to this place, and we have to fix the psychology. If we want to fix many of these communities, we have to fix the psychology. Uh -huh. And uh, you know, this is going to be very controversial, but. Again, let me give a disclaimer here. It's going to be <laughs> very controversial. We have to we have to fix this image of what goes on in our churches, and that's why we mentioned the, the white Jesus. And not that we you know against white people or anything, but if we want to fix the psychology of the black male who's shooting another black male, mm -hmm. we have to fix the his psychology, her psychology. We have to learn to work together. Mm. And and so we have to learn to see each other, mm -hmm. love each other, understand that we have worth, we have value. Where do we get the idea we have worth and value? Oh, because we have a history. Mm. We have a history of yes. of whatever it's helping each other during enslavement, mm. sometimes selling each other out, <laughs> mm -hmm. or 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 you know doing whatever. We need to understand this and understand. Listen, I, I listened to, I listened to uh, a racist one time. Um, during uh, one of those uh, alt right kind of things, and he's saying, you know, he's a you know redneck. Uh, he was he was really a redneck. I'm not just saying he was really he wasn't one of those suit wearing dudes. He was really a redneck. Redneck. <laughs> and he, <laughs> but he was saying, you know, black people, you know, they they, they don't they got a, a crisis of identity. They don't they don't want to be called Negroes or colored or black or or or. or, or. And he's not wrong in that. He mm. wasn't wrong to a certain to a certain extent. We have to figure out who we are, love we love and love that. And embrace that, and that. How does that come? It comes to our knowing history, yep. and so once we understand, we can't run from this. We can't try to um, uh, try to insert ourselves into these different historical places, which I think we're trying to do a lot of times when we have these images of these different apostles of, of, of a different skin color. Now, love who we are. We adopt tribe names after some other person's tribe not adopt these ashanti tribe names we can still do the same thing i have been very critical i'm probably going to catch a lot of heat for this again too but 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 a lot of times people always want to join these greek clubs and stuff mm -hmm. uh, why don't we have some african club why don't we name them why don't we name them after african people yeah. i don't, I don't we, we and people are alphas and i'm i'm an alpha wait a minute that's not us <laughs> let's <laughs> why, why can't we be the ashantis why can't we be the song gay why can't we be the you know the ethiopians why 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 do we have to do that listen we have to embrace and love ourselves mm -hmm. my grandmother my aunt used to tell me all the time you don't love yourself nobody else is gonna love you Oof. you can't you can't you can't you mm. can't be down on yourself and looking at yourself and do you depressed and and saying i wish i was something else i wish i was taller or shorter or 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 bigger or you got to love yourself. And then that energy that you put off will, will, will attract people. Mm. And, I, and I think that, that many of us suffer from that type of thing. We do. And in what you just hit on, that's what family research has proven and produced in the last 20 years, that when you teach and raise a child, when you socialize a child in healthy ethnic identity and self-esteem, or what we call ethnic self-concept, that child has a deep value of who they are. They have a deep sense of love. It eradicates um, uh, uh, it eradicates 
social anxiety and social depression or anxiety and depression that comes from them trying to find themselves in a socialized world that devalues them. It, it, it produces much more better academic outcomes. It, it, it has an economic, they've been able to trace economic development in children who grew up with a sense of understanding who they was and their racialization or racial socialization or ethnic identity, being able to connect that there's an economic benefit of teaching a child who they are and the literacy development of who they are and how they embrace that. So the evidence is already established in the work of family development that if you invest in teaching your children who they are, whether they have a strong pride in their blackness in America, or whether they have a deep lineage connection to their Africanness as it uh, trans, uh, transcends before slavery into now, it's going to give them a sense of collective identity that's going to be rooted in a triumphant story. It's going to give them a, a steam, a dignity, uh, and a lineage that gives them power and an embracing of a humanity that has has goes back into antiquity. When a child has that rooted from early on, they grow up with a, lo a lot more resilience to deal with the world, a white world that tends to try to demean them in every way. And the powerful thing about our children is that white children get the uh, they get the opportunity and the luxury to not be race conscious until they're like six, seven or possibly even eight. But research and scholarship have been able to see that black children are aware of their blackness as early as three years of age. And at that age, they're already developing some distinguishing difference between what black and white is. And there's already already seeds and sentiments of inferiority adjacent to that blackness. And so it's very much important for us to not only establish and have a celebration of our history, um, throughout a study of our history throughout the year, but a celebration of that ritualistically every single week, every single month, and every single day. And so what you're saying is right on point, and it fits into well why we do um, Black history and family science together, because we've married the two to see why it's important for family institutions, Black family institutions, to really have a strong ethnic embrace of who they are uh, as African descendants or Black folks in this country. We have to do that work because we can't save ourselves without us having a deep sense of that. And, that. and to your point about the Greek piece, I understand what we established in 1904, 06, 08. <laughs> I understand why we had to do that then. But at least by the time the 60s and the 70s come, if we didn't develop a, a frat or a sorrow that's based on some African iconography by that time, I'm like, I'm still kind of perplexed. Like, why haven't we embraced alphabetic uh, fraternalization or soror a sorority that extends from my own, you know, experience as West Africans. Um, and there's a lot of discourses. I mean, we, the 70s was, the late 60s, early 70s was a black revolutionary. It was a black consciousness development. Like um, we had a sense of Africanness before that because we can look at the trajectory of the Pan-African movement that started in the uh, late, 1890s and some even go back to 1860s and then we see these five conferences that happened between the early 1900s to the 1950 uh, uh, I think the last one was in the late 1950s maybe early 1960s these pan-african conferences was indications of black folks already saying we're connected to this diasporic connections of brotherhood of brothers in Haiti and Jamaica and the Caribbean to South America and across the uh, Atlantic and, um, and Africa we have a brother and a sisterhood 
But in the 60s and the 70s, it culminated to this full revolutionary piece where we've seen this full embrace of being African descendants. And we even adjusted and evolved our identity to recognizing ourselves as African-Americans. African-American as an identity is an ethnic affiliation for black folks in this country. African-American to um, Austin Ching, uh, a Republican candidate running for governor in Michigan, that's a national identity for him. Those are two different things. Ethnic identity is us trying to reconnect to a peoplehood. National identity is a, is a certification. That's a green card. That's you being certified as being recognized as being a citizen of a country. Um, that's you being protected under the Constitution. There are two associations to that term. And so it makes sense why some of my, uh, my African brothers who just recently got here in the last 30, 40 years, they're complicated with what it means to be African-American because for them, they come from a totally different experience. They never understood what it means to be deprecated within a society like this. They've experienced colonization, but they've never experienced enslavement. They've never experienced uh, sharecropping, peonage, um, uh, redlining, mass incarceration, drug infestation. When you went through the trajectory of those social systems and how it's changed and completely demeaned your experience and, and fragmented your family and community institutions, connecting to Africa takes on a whole new different meaning. And so when they get their national identity of African-American, it's not the same thing as those black folks saying we are African-American or African descendants. Powerful stuff, brother. Powerful stuff. Thank you so much, man. It was very, very enlightening, man. Very, very enlightening. I hope that you get that teaching position at uh, some university. Hopefully, hope somebody so. listens to this and say we got to we got to hire this brother. He's on point. <laughs> I hope so. I need a job teaching Black history somewhere, please. <laughs> uh, listen, it's important, man. Yeah. Um, so, uh, just once again, just remind the, the the folks about your business, where we can reach you at, and all that kind of stuff. Um, again, Adrian and Ayolanda Mack, Black Family Blueprint. Um, you can reach us at blackfamilyblueprint at gmail.com. Our website is blackfamilyblueprint.com or bfamb.com if that's shorter and easier to reach to. Um, we do work with working with African-American families. We have workshops that we put on. Most of it is moved online now. We provide coaching directly to Black parents around co-parenting, around building healthier relationships with your children, or to increase our effectiveness with being Black mothers and Black fathers as well, too. Very good. Yeah, I think that that's really important. I really have a passion for the for for young men, and I want them to grow up to be men. And mm -hmm. I think that that's really important. So I appreciate the work that you all are doing. We got to get these. We got to get these brothers to really step up, man. It's yes, it's very very disappointing to me. And I know we're doing better statistically. You know, more of us are graduating from college and high school, and we're doing better. But we gotta, we gotta still do better. Then <laughs> it's, it's still a lot of work to do. Absolutely. So I hope that people listen to this. I hope they pick up some of the books. They write down some of the names that you. I was jotting down names people I never heard of. Some books I never heard of. Um, so you know, I'm always looking on a hunt for something new. I hope this was very, very inspirational to people. If there are white brothers and sisters out there who are who are listening. Think about what we said. Um, it's not next Black History Month is not about you all. It's about us 
throughout the year. But mm -hmm. I do think that there's a point and element that white people need to say, you know what, this is important. We should we should know this kind of thing, you know. So I, I do I do agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, I don't agree with this brother Chang is saying it should be it's, it's illegal. This brother nah. wants to make it illegal. Right. <laughs> come, come on, <laughs> you know, the Kool Aid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. You need to back up off that Kool Aid, brother. <laughs> you need to back up off that, man. What is, what is, he's going too much. Like you said, a lot of it is you know he's. He knows the state that he's in, and he's mm -hmm. he's pandering, you know. So, but I mean, he's, he's trying he's trying to get not to get kidnapped. That's what it is. If he if he run for, <laughs> he yeah, don't want to yeah. get kidnapped. Yeah, Michigan, so he's trying not to get snatched up. <laughs> <laughs> but his rhetoric is very is very consistent with black Republican conservatives of today. Candace Owens yeah, yeah. spouted the same thing. Like I said, Stacey Dash, who was very favoring black uh, Republicans. One of my favorites is, is Larry Elder. I actually like that. I mean, he's he's, he's entertaining, <laughs> he's, yeah. Yeah. and I listen to him. I'm like, that ain't right, brother. <laughs> you checking the truth on that? <laughs> that ain't right, man. Yeah. You know, he, he was quoting some time. What time he said he, he was quoting the uh, the body cam body cam footage, mm -hmm. and so what he's saying is that uh, you know, with body cam footage, with police officers body cam footage, it, now the cops are wearing wearing body cameras, so no one knows if. Because the cops are wearing it, are they addressing or adjusting their own behavior, or is the public mm. not 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 uh, adjusting and not you know trying to amp up the situation? Mm -hmm. No one no one can tell that. But he's saying, yeah, the public was lying the whole time. Cops were never abusing people. Come on, brother, how are you just gonna say something crazy like that? Man? How are you gonna say something crazy like that? You know? <laughs> oh my goodness! What yeah. is this psychology? They call that um. Um, 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 oh, it's like interviewee uh, adjustment syndrome, or it's, it's something where the you change up your persona based on you being there interviewing or connecting with that person. So most law enforcement now is going to adjust how they talk and communicate to black yeah, folks or anybody. There was, a, there was a, I do know the principle, there, there, well, I don't know, but, but that there was a principle, I looked at it recently about, um, yeah, when they put up cameras in factories and stuff, and for a while the employees start act, start doing better because they know they're being monitored. Yeah. But then, but after a while, you start forgetting that the camera's there. Yeah. <laughs> you start going, you start going back to your original <laughs> original behavior. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but this brother's like, oh, you know, the, the, the cops are always treating people right, and the people were lying. Brother, where do you get that from, man? <laughs> you know, don't. So, uh, yeah, these 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 right wing Republican. Boot licking. What what did Malcolm say? I can't call him. I can't call him Uncle Tom's anymore. Oh. I just call him uncles. Uncle. <laughs> <laughs> Yo, man. I rewound that like like ten times when Malcolm said that. <laughs> I can't call him. They sue you if you call him Uncle Tom's. So these uncles. <laughs> <laughs> All right, right. Malcolm was vicious with it. <laughs> Malcolm oh, was vicious. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Listen, I'm gonna let you go, man. I really, really appreciate. It. I'm having you back, man. We could chop it up about something else, man. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, I'm gonna finish watching this impeachment trial that we all know is he's gonna get off. <laughs> uh, you know, he's <laughs> which is which is madness, but you know it is what it is. What you, what's your thoughts about that? Before, I, before? I, I'm afraid he's gonna get off. I, I know that. They get <laughs> well, stop off. being afraid. It's gonna happen. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Yes. I know. It's like it's. It's not only should he be impeached, he should be brought up on charges and he's just going to get slapped on the wrist and 
Fortunately, there are states, uh, Georgia's looking at them, uh, New York is looking at them for all these different tax type of things. Georgia's looking at them for for their attempted uh, election voting, tampering and all that kind of stuff. So I think that they all re realize that the, the Senate isn't going to do their job. And um, and so they're going to try to get him on some other stuff that he's not. In. So I'm hoping that I'm hoping they get him, man, because I, I think what he did was very, was vicious, was dangerous. And if you don't stop him, you'll have somebody worse than him. Somebody's worse. Yeah. Somebody's more smooth. Mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, that was the thing with uh, Hitler. You know, he was smooth. You know, mm -hmm. he came out. He was he was smooth. He was good orator. Hit the people where they were. This guy was was as smooth as sandpaper over rocks you know he he was he was obvious in what he was saying but you get somebody who's really really smooth about it man they, they'll, they'll come in and do, do some damage so you gotta we gotta cut this off so absolutely absolutely brother matt i really appreciate it man yes really sir Thank you, my brother uh man I, let's do this again i would love to have, be on it here again uh you'll be back brother well, i gotta come out to the minnesota and get you and stacy on or you and you and your wife on and you'll be back oh, brother sure for it's, sure when it gets warm we yeah. Oh, you when it gets warm, I'm not going out there now. <laughs> <laughs> I am not going to Minnesota when it's below zero, man. I went outside the other day; it was like 20 degrees. I'm like, man, this is the coldest weather because I'm I'm always in the house because I'm retired. So I'm like, yeah, it's always cold out here. <laughs> it was like 20. It was cold. It was like 20 degrees, but I, I you know, it's, obviously it gets colder in Connecticut. We get those you know negative degree days too, man. But I'm like, man, it's it's really really bad out here. I'm like, yeah. Man, I'm I, saw, I was sounding to myself like a little girl, like, man, house. <laughs> so, so I'm definitely not going to Minnesota when it's like that. Not like this. <laughs> All right, brother. All right. I'll talk to you, man. Take, take care.